In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A few years ago, the remake of an old Western movie, 310 to Yuma, appeared in theaters. It told the story of two landowners whose land were basically adjacent to one another. One of the landowners was quite wealthy, had, I believe, an investment in the railroad. And the railroad was coming through. And the railroad needed his neighbor's land. And so the wealthy landowner wanted to persuade his neighbor to sell the land that he might get richer from the railroad. The, younger, the other man, the poor one, did not want to sell. He enjoyed farming and ranching, was making a basic living from it, and wanted to live on the land for the rest of his life. So the wealthier landowner recognized that there was a stream of water that ran across both their lands. And the source for that water was on the wealthy landowner's land. So he dammed up the stream to prevent the water from going to his neighbor, thereby depriving his neighbor's cattle, water, and crops of nourishment. The attempt was to persuade his neighbor, force his neighbor to sell at a much lower cost so that the railroad might take it over. In many respects, this is what Luther is talking about in the Ninth and Tenth Commandments. This is what makes the Ninth and Tenth Commandment different from the Seventh in his explanations. In other words, in the Seventh Commandment, we're dealing with acquiring our neighbor's property by illegal means. We think of things like shoplifting, breaking into someone's house and plundering it, for example. The Ninth and Tenth Commandment is also dealing with acquiring one's neighbor's goods, well-being, and property, but by legal means, if you will, or by means that appear right. In other words, using the law and manipulating the law in order to acquire what belongs to one's neighbor, or perhaps by using loopholes in the law. I suppose in our day, in the last few years, we've seen examples of this as uh, corporations use the law of eminent domain not in order to acquire private property for public use, but to acquire private property for private use and investment. Now, Luther also includes in here things such as making one's neighbor, enticing away from one's neighbor, children, spouse, workers, and so forth, either by speaking ill of neighbor and making them dissatisfied or by luring them in other ways. Now, I suppose in some ways our day is a little bit different from Luther's. I was talking with Dr. Robinson a few weeks ago about this. Luther is dealing with how we acquire what belongs to our neighbor and how we can take it away from them by legal means. But today, you and I live in a culture of mass production. I'm not sure if this always applies in exactly the same way. For example, if you and I covet what our neighbor has, we don't necessarily find ways of tricking our neighbor out of it. If we covet what our neighbor has, we simply go and buy it because there's plenty around. So if I want what my neighbor has, I just find a way to go out and buy it myself. So there's perhaps a a little bit of a difference here. On the other hand, you have to kind of wonder if we need to simply connect more dots. There are those who 
would perhaps suggest that in a society of mass production and mass consumption, we are also engaged in the depletion of Earth's gifts. And as we deplete the Earth of its gifts, prices go up and less is available for my neighbor. So it may be that we still deprive our neighbor of that which he or she needs, again, by ways that appear right. We're simply buying a lot of stuff. Well, what are we dealing with here in the end? Well, what we're dealing with involves the protection and well-being of our neighbor. It deals with the protection and well-being not only of our neighbor, but think about this, of the creation on which our neighbor's life depends. Wendell Berry has observed that you and I cannot look after our neighbor without looking after the land, the creation on which our neighbor's well-being depends. We cannot look after our neighbor without looking after the property, the family, the friends on which his or her well-being depends. For these things are the means by which God preserves our neighbor's well-being. Well, when looked at in this way, that we can't deal with our neighbor apart from creation and vice versa, we can recognize that the Ten Commandments in some ways properly follow the first article. I think Luther recognized this in the large catechism. He notes that following on the first article, we ought to thank and praise, serve, and obey according to the Ten Commandments. In other words, you and I cannot deal with each other without dealing with creaturely gifts of God. You and I cannot deal with God apart from creation or the creaturely gifts of God. They are the means by which God created us, preserves us, and protects us. Everything then, in a sense, begins with the first article. Everything begins with God's creating, God's giving, God's protecting, God's preserving. We are creatures. There is no higher title, Luther argued, than to be called a creature. People might be called princes and kings and doctors and professors. There is no better title than to be called a creature. It means you are the workmanship of God, the craftsmanship of God, the handiwork of God, both now and in the new creation. All creation, then, is a gift by which God gives us life and well-being. And yet God does not stop giving in the first article. It continues in the second article, as Luther strongly points out. That in addition to giving us all creation, God has given us all that he has, namely his Son. The Creator became a creature. And by means of a creaturely body, the Creator rescued us and renewed his creation even after we had wrecked it. In addition to giving us his son, he gives us the spirit who brings about the new creation. Even now, as you and I hear his word and receive his body and blood. Well, what does this all mean then? Well, in a society of mass consumption and conspicuous consumption, we in the Western world, in North America in particular, have come to define ourselves by what we consume and how we desire. 
Bill McKibben has pointed out that we are bombarded with messages that our, de- our desires are of ultimate importance. That our desires are of ultimate importance. They define us. But the story of God centered in Jesus Christ. The story of the creed, the story of the catechism makes clear that God's creating and God's giving defines us. In other words, God's giving defines who we are, not our desiring. God's giving of himself in creation above all else in his son. So even in these scary economic times, God's gifts of daily bread, life, body, friends, neighbor, family, colleagues, these are all given by God to serve the well-being of our neighbor and each one of you. The eternal bread of Jesus Christ is given for forgiveness that you and I might receive all the gifts of the creed. Let me think about it. All three articles of the creed and all the gifts they entail are given to you and I without any merit or worthiness in us. They shape our lives. God's giving, not our desiring, define our creatureliness. They provide the basis for looking after our neighbor. So we're about to go on break, quarter break, Thanksgiving break. With these breaks, God provides us with bodily rest. With Thanksgiving, we have the opportunity to give thanks for all that he has given us and our neighbors. The catechism is pretty good here. Thank and praise, serve and obey. Thank and praise for all that God has given us, which defines us, results in serving our neighbor according to the Ten Commandments. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.